I can't have more fun than this podcast. Today, we have Kate Billing. She's New Zealand's leading leadership expert. She travels all around Australia and New Zealand talking to leaders about how to be better. And we're going to riff today about stoicism. We're going to learn all about Epictetus. We're going to learn about Marcus Aurelius. And we're going to have a really good chat to a fantastically knowledgeable lady. So welcome to the Reset Podcast. Ms. Kate Billing. So Kate Billing, is it good being you? It is great being me, Luke Mattis. Thank you very much for asking. There you go. And we were just talking offline about um, the fact that we're both kind of spiritual freelancers and there's a little Buddha behind your left shoulder there and and you love the Stoics and things like that. I'm, I'm sitting here with my made-up Taoist T-shirt on. And um, tell me what being a, a spiritual freelancer means to you. Well, I, and I know that um, our mutual friend Lisa, the lovely Lisa O'Neill, uh, coined that phrase. And I, th- I think it's quite a good one in that I don't feel like I need to identify with any one thing. That's not what my identity needs to sort of say, mm-hmm. I, you know, I am. I, on my LinkedIn profile, uh, I say that I'm a humanist just because that's part of what uh, yeah, the, it's a great concept. I love it. Yeah, it's part of the soup um, of sort of spiritual, philosophical, and psychological kind of background, psychology background. That that my me as a person and the work I do in the world sits in. So I think spiritual freelancer, if we use that phrase, means to me this: this there's a there is no need to identify with a particular. Um, religion or individual school of philosophy or whatever at an identity level and that one feels free to explore and take what works from Mm. a variety of sources and I, I feel like that's important because you're always holding your own beliefs or your own experience up to the light and looking at them from a new perspective rather than getting entrenched in a single way of thinking or seeing the world. And yeah, I, think I, th- that's, I think that's that, an important part of human growth. That single way of doing it is almost like almost outsourcing your beliefs and your values to someone else. And, like, you know, mm. um, I, I have this theory that in the last 2,000 years, if, you know, there's nothing that's actually new that's been said really. You know, if we take if we take things like Lao Tzu and Buddha and you know Jesus and Muhammad and stuff out of it, then there's not really a whole lot new that's been said in the last couple of thousand years. Everything is just a a rehash of of something that's been said before. Yeah, well, I, you know, our context has changed radically over that time, and I mean, we'll we'll get into this through our conversation, I'm sure. But I think the the, the being human hasn't the context in which we sit fires off and asks different things of us or puts different pressures on us in new ways but the human being that we are tends to respond out of a kind of a way of being human that has been the way it has for you know thousands of years tens of thousands of years actually mm. you know this thing's incredible what what our brain has created um what we have created together in the world is incredible, but what it is to be human hasn't essentially changed at all. We're still acting out just in response to different things. 
Yeah, it's amazing that that, that hardwired stuff's all still in there. And uh, I guess what we've got to get get used to is being able to sort of overcome some of those things that are hardwired into us that actually aren't helping in the environment we've got now. Like everything was was made to be really good at keeping us alive in a land full of tigers and, and threats, but it sometimes isn't isn't serving us quite so well now in a in a land that's not that and the threats are often from our own head. Yeah. Yeah. There's there um the whole threats from our own head. It's like and, and we interrupt and distract ourselves more than other people do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the you know these things, obviously living life in a hyper connected way, the um, contextual challenges of living in the current situation as we are, no matter where in the world you are during the pandemic, COVID, which is going to be you know as part of our future. We've got we have to all recognise it's not like this. Uh, is going away, um, whether it's this one or a different form. There are things that are always threatening us, and our our brains don't know the difference between physical threats and neurosocial threats. So yeah, yeah. they're exactly the same, aren't they? So yeah, you work a lot with leaders and, and people like that, and teach them how to how to lead from a more sort of human perspective. Um, what does that look like? How do you teach them some of those skills on, on sort of you know how to get around that, those hardwired things that causes stress and grief and don't help? Yeah, I, look, I think the the first thing is to make people aware of who you know how what being human is like. You know, the because that sounds like a weird thing. Like, surely people don't need to know what humans being like. It's like we spend so much time caught up here or in drama with each other or occupied um, in work, distracting our minds um, and not really paying attention to our thoughts, to our feelings and how those two things play out in our behaviour, you know, coming right back to a belief perspective. So we've got some stuff that's physically and neurologically wired in and then we have stuff which we've been conditioned with in terms of belief structures. You know, we talked about spiritual freelancers before, but we all come with wiring. Mm-hmm. Um, from our culture, from our parents, from our experiences through life. And so it it has to, you know, we have to meet people where they are in this kind of work. So often it's just with very simple ideas that begin mental models and ways of thinking and experiencing how, who they are and how they do life and leadership that helps them begin to see themselves and each other a little bit more. Um, over time as we work with people and they wake up, you know, their level of conscious awareness about themselves, about their own community, the light and shadow of it, their experience of being with others in a workplace or at home or in community. As that grows and their capacity to go deeper in this work grows, then we can start getting into some of the, you know, the deeper philosophical kind of questions and the the you know, the aspects of self-determinism and being able to choose how we see things and what we do rather than operate out of a um, sort of subconsciously programmed system of which we're not aware. So we kind of meet them where they are, give them some simple stuff to help raise their awareness about how they do just ordinary everyday things, what they might experience in themselves and others, and through time create the space when they're willing and curious to go kind of deeper and wider on that work but I you guess, can't rush straight to having a big you can't rush straight to philosophy 
Um, yeah, I get that. People get a bit scared of that, don't they? They they kind of really will push back and like, oh, this is a bit too, you know, up in the air or this is a bit too airy-fairy or this is a bit too deep for me. And we almost have a, a phobia around it, don't A lot of people do that. They just don't want to go there. And, um, yeah, I, I, I struggle with it a little bit because I'm, I'm a bit impatient, so I tend to want to sort of drag them there kicking and screaming. And I, I know it doesn't work, but I keep doing it, and I'm not quite sure what advice you'd give to to stop that. To I guess it's that meet them where they are thing, I guess. Yeah, and the best way to do it is the way in which philosophy works, and that is to ask questions and create the space for people to sit and reflect and think and and. I love group work, so it's always about groups and and in organisations, you know, that's the human system. And so asking questions, providing the space and allowing people to reflect on their own and talk together rather than just putting more content and more tools at them is actually what supports this kind of um, awakening, if you like, in themselves. And the thing about stoicism, as an example, is that it's the most practical school of philosophy <clears throat> you know it's it's about how we do life um it's not um about answering some of the almost impossible mind-bending questions that you get in some other schools of philosophy which are deliberately about like bringing your mind to the edge of what it knows or what it thinks is right and getting into real debates like I say, almost these unanswerable questions. Whereas stoicism is it's it's really practical, you know, it's based on being in um, living as much as we can in harmony and integration with nature, including with our own nature. That's something that human beings we see nature as something separate from ourselves rather than that we are part of the natural system. So even that yeah. level of, of of awakening, but you know, even living living into the four Stoic virtues of um, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Um, and temperance is an interesting one for, for people it? sometimes to get. Uh, it's not being a wowser and abstinence. It's actually about discipline and moderation and finding a middle path, which actually is quite a lot like Buddhism in lots of ways. So it's it's a great place to start people's exploration of what it is to be human and how we might choose to do and be that in a different way. Why do you think the Stoics have got such a bum rap? Because, like, if you ask anyone that hasn't actually read a bit of it and understand it, they really do get a bum rap in terms of, you know, they're dour and they're miserable and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, they're not at all. Like, you look at someone like Epicurus, he he had a – they had a – they had a blast. You know, he did, all he wanted to do was have fun and hang with his friends and all of that sort of stuff, and they had a lovely time. Why, yeah, do, they, mean, why do you was, think they have that dour reputation? Well, I think he was he was also more of a, almost more of a hedonist than a, um, that whole hedonic wheel kind of piece than necessarily. So when I, I think about the Stoics and why they're getting a bum rap, I think it's because not a lot of people read them. Um you know, take the time to actually understand them. What, Dear listeners, here are some recommendations for you. Okay. Uh, this chap, Ryan Holiday, yeah, you're wanting to get a bit of a, yeah, so he's a, young, he's a young guy, right, but who's really latched onto this. So his three books that he's got, which are a great intro, are these ones, although I think Zoom's back to fronting it. Um, no, it's not, still, 
stillness is the key, the obstacle is the way, and ego is the enemy. And in times of COVID, this is the place that I would recommend people start. This idea of um, the ancient art of turning adversity into advantage. I I reckon the Stoic, even the word Stoic, it's been appropriated and used in our language to describe people as being Stoic, which means stiff upper lip, you know, just man up, shoulder into it, it, toughen up and get on with it. And I can see how that's been extrapolated out, but it's kind of unfair <laughs> in that yeah. they they were very much about looking. I talk about, you know, looking into the darkness or that you've got to be prepared to do that. Like the whole what's the worst that can happen. Prepare mm-hmm. for the worst and expect the best is mm-hmm. something that you could say is a stoic tenant. Yep. You know, you've got to – don't and and it's people getting over attached to all the good stuff that they might have and that they might want in life and then comparing themselves to other people who have more or something and going well that's not right stoics are like just don't bother compare yourself to yourself um get your essential needs met greg McEwen, who wrote essentialism is another great example actually of a modern stoic because he's saying just focus on what's essential you know a stoic a, a piece of stoicism that's really important in the world right now is that you just focus on what's essential and do that rather than trying to do all the things, get your essential needs met. And once those are met, just work till you have enough. And if we can all have enough, what's essential and enough, you know, these are not things that sound like a doer, gray, hard tempered person. You know, these are, this is, uh, these are humans who particularly when I think about people like, say, Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor of Rome. Um, And his lifetime struggle with absolute power, you know, anyone who's read Animal Farm at school (laughs) as a kid would know, you know, Napoleon, you know, absolute power. um, What is it? Absolute power corrupts corrupts absolutely. And Marcus Aurelius was living into that. He was one. He was the most powerful man on the planet at yeah. the time that he was. And he went through a pandemic life. and things like that as well in his life. As- and he was constantly meditating upon that struggle and how to be a good man when he could be and do and have anything that he yeah. wanted, you know. And it, it, that's another, actually another great place to start if people are wanting to read more direct from Stoics is his um, book Meditations, which was never meant to be published. He didn't write it as a book for other people. It's his personal journal. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of the practical things, say, in Stoicism, this daily practice of reflecting on your own experience and your own humanity through the lens of those four virtues. Yeah, it's one of those things I, I often would hear people like psychologists and stuff talk about about journaling and how, you know, journaling is the road to enlightenment and all this sort of stuff. And they talk about and they, they say it as a really therapeutic thing and I push back on that for years and I love it now. I just journal in the notes on my phone so it's nothing, you know, but there's something about that that you get these, we get epiphanies occasionally and we lose them. They just go away off in, into the dust and there's something about yeah you know, I've actually tried to get in the habit I've deleted all the social media off my phone now and sometimes if I'm wanting to amuse myself in a time of boredom I'll actually just flick through the notes in my phone and it's fantastic 
because you, you get to you get to outsource those epiphanies so that you never lose them again. And there's something about journaling that I really like like that. And it's not as touchy feely in that it's just a practical way to to keep your thinking good. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as a tool. One of the, the things that's central to the work that we do is this idea that leadership is a conversation. And the first conversation that we have is the one we have with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's going on all the time in an uncontrolled and unconscious way. You know, the old monkey mind is just, this thought machine yep. is generating stuff all the time. The way in which we can slow that down and have a different relationship with ourselves and a more deliberate conversation is by journaling, is by, is by writing stuff down and working through our struggles and on paper. And there are lots of great techniques for doing that. But just what's your make- technique? What, what what's your go to for you? What what do you like to do to slow that that monkey mind down and to actually get your clarity of your thoughts? Well, the first thing is um, I think meditation as a practice is first the proper med- like meditation as a mindful meditation, sitting and just being with your experience is a really important practice for just being able to be more with yourself and not and if you when you get caught up in the unhealthy thinking and everything else to just create just this little bit of space pull it back to your breath and all that sort of stuff yeah and so that's the first thing um there is some recent research that's been done about what you know how long is now this idea of now well if you talk to (laughs) Einstein that's that's one thing but this idea of how long is now and now is about two and a half seconds apparently and so you know we have this little space where we can be more with ourselves in any set of circumstances um i am a fan of longhand journaling so writing writing it down uh there is something different that happens in the brain in terms of the way the brain works when we have to write rather than tippy tap type um, and there's great research now around this, particularly from things like university students, people who take their notes on a laptop yeah. where they end up doing kind of verbatim note-taking versus long handwriting where you have to process the thoughts and pause and take a bit more time. And there's, there's a different depth of understanding. So when you – and look, the main thing is do the practice, whether you do it in your phone or longhand is kind of yeah. beside the point. So – uh, I just don't do the long hand because my writing's illegible. <laughs> Nobody else needs to read it. So you don't even need ri- to read it half the time. Yeah, I know. I get it. But, <clears throat> yeah, my writing's like my third grade teacher would just be disgraced, would think I'm a disgrace because it's just completely illegible. But I know what you mean because you can't, you can think it about 600 words a minute, but you can only write at like 120 or something like that. Or even speaking, you can only do it about yes. two to 300. So it's yes. got to slow it down, doesn't it? Yeah. And so there is... And do you think that, that's, that's the main reason why it's so beneficial? Because it's because like, of the speed at which it makes you think? It's one of the reasons. Um, so you asked about sort of methods. One of them is stream of consciousness writing. So that's just sometimes called automatic writing. You just open your journal and set a timer or decide on a number of pages and you just write whatever is downloading this through this onto the paper and then rereading it. Um, And 
that I find that is particularly good when I am waking up with a very busy brain. You know, there's a lot of cause for anxiety and stress and worry in the world at the moment in response to all of the uncertainty or what people might see people seeing as being unfair circumstances. And for me, that wakes me up about two or three in the morning. So that's a great way of writing, just writing it out. And I write generally for four pages at that point. And generally at the top to halfway through page four, I can feel a shift emotionally and energetically from the thoughts slow down, the writing slows down, it's more legible and I feel the, the space and lightness. And then can read back through you it. Do that at and night. Can you then get back to sleep? Yeah. If you do yeah. that, you can. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of science behind that, isn't it? To, that having that to and being able to. Okay, I've put that down. Now I don't have to keep ruminating on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I th- there are there are good questions. Another way of doing it is to have a question that you are answering. And you might answer mm-hmm. it for a week, say, a question that you're pondering, like, um, you know, if there's something that you're wanting to achieve in the world or there's something that's coming up in your leadership or your life or your business, that you might ask yourself a question about that. And every morning or every evening, and the morning's the best, morning's great for this kind of reflection, is to answer that question. And just read back on that and, and do it for like a week for seven days in a row. Like what mindsets might I need to change in order to fill in the blank? You know, what is a, what's the belief I have that's not serving me? Um, and, I, and I think one of the simplest things that one can do as an end of day reflection is to say, you know, was I a better me today than yesterday? Yes or no? And whatever the answer, then right what comes up for you about that why why were you perhaps not the best version of yourself today or not as good as yesterday or better than yesterday because actually comparing ourselves to ourselves is the only comparison we should ever be doing yeah and i guess that's where you get your growth from doesn't it is if you're better today than you were yesterday and you do that every single day you're going to have incremental growth every day aren't you so yeah and you know what you're not going to say yes every day it's just yeah, okay. if you get no if you get no two days in a row, you really want to be thinking hard about how you can show up the next day. What do you need in yourself? What do you need from other people um, to make sure that it's not three strikes and you're out? Yeah, I get I know what you mean. Have you, have you read a book um, by Professor William Irvine called The Stoic Challenge? Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. Um, one of the ones he says, and he, he can't he he can't find a, a stoic that said it in these words. But his his line that I really took out of that was, "Do what you can with what you've got where you are." Yeah, and I really love that concept. You know how if you if you read a book, if you can take one sentence like that away with you, you know, and have it for the rest of your life, I think that book's you know worth the the price of admission. It's worth. <laughs> It's worth spending a few hours reading, and that was that was the one that that really hit me. He he talks about the Stoic challenge, and it was basically whenever something hard, be like obstacle is away. Whenever something hard comes up, that's your cue to say, "Oh, the Stoic gods are sending me a test here. Let's uh, ask, you know, let's answer that challenge." And yeah, it's it's a great way to look at it. Do you, are there things like that that you teach in some of the stuff that you do? 
Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about there in, in kind of modern terms, one would talk about is self-compassion. I'm doing the best I can with what I've got in this particular set of circumstances. And um, I actually, I wrote down down a few things because there's so many great quotes and I didn't want to get them wrong. But, What's your favourite? Um, Do you have one that really just hits you between the eyes every time? Um, God, there's so many. Epictetus in particular, I think, is, is a favourite of mine. He was a slave who became a teacher. The great, wonderful thing about the Stoics is no, you, they didn't write anything. Like I said, Marcus Aurelius didn't write meditations to be published. It was his private mm-hmm. journal. Yep. People like Epictetus and Cicero and, and Cato and um, Seneca, people like that, they just went around and talked and other people took notes and published. So we never know whether this stuff is actually what they said or somebody's. I'm not sure it matters. I've, I'm not I've, sure it matters either. You know, um, I, I came across a website once that was called Fake Buddha Quotes. Oh, yeah. And some guy had gone to a massive amount of effort to prove that Buddha didn't say certain things. And everything that he proved he didn't say was completely in line with the Buddha's teaching and all of that sort of stuff. Why the hell would you go to all the all the problem to to come up with a website to prove he didn't actually say it? Yeah. I know, well, this is the thing about getting too stuck and thinking that these things are real. Um and there are lots of rugged holes that we could go down here. But these are things that have come out of our culture over the years, thousands of years, regardless of the school that they get identified with or the author that is alleged to have said the things. But as you said in the beginning, so much of it are universal truths about human beings, you know, right through to, say, the latest, one of the most recent schools of philosophy being humanism, which I'm a man, mad fan of as well, both from a philosophy perspective and a psychology perspective. Um, there is, I was just looking back at my notes, there's this quote from Epictetus, which I really like. There's this idea in, in Stoicism um, called sympathia, which is this idea of that... Um, and this is a, a like non-dualism in Buddhism, this mm-hmm. idea that everything is inde- interdependent and connected, that everything is one. Now, that's, again, not a very dual, grey-faced, hard-nosed, stoic idea, right? We're all interconnected, interdependent. We're all one. And this Epictetus quote, love, seeking the very best in ourselves means actively caring for the welfare of other human beings. Love it. You know, and... Um, you know, I just Can you I just say that again for me, Kate? That yeah. was beautiful. Seeking the very best in ourselves means actively caring for the welfare of other human beings. Ah, uh, that's that's just you know, so imagine if people looked at life that way. So like like I'm really struggling, I'm really I've got real problems and I'm worried about a lot of stuff. I'm gonna go out and help someone else. And it it helps. It, it does help, right? It's uh, that kindness and generosity and I think when you look at, say, the life that someone like Epictetus had, he was taken as a slave, he lived as a slave, he lived a hard life, and he won his freedom, and then he became a teacher. You know, you look at someone like him, and then you have someone like Marcus Aurelius, who we've talked about, who's just said so many amazing things. Mm -hmm. Um, He's the obstacle is the way guy. Um, And he was the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And then you have people like Seneca who were 
I mean, he was the wealthiest man in the world at the time, and he was a mm-hmm. he was a senator and he was a dramatist and he was you know very very wealthy, but still wrote deeply meaningful. And everything at that time was written as letters. His stuff was written down. It was written as letters. Deeply meaningful stuff about the nature of humanity and, you know, wealth and doing right and good by all people. I love Seneca's um, idea that if you don't know what port you're heading for, no wind is beneficial. Yeah. That one just, wow, you've got to have some form of idea what your North Star is and which way you want to go, otherwise no wind's beneficial. And I, I really love that one. That that massively resonated with me. Yeah, and when I was growing up, a saying in, that I heard often was, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you. You know, right. so there are these things yeah. that are just have stayed in our culture. I mean, the Stoics started, what, 2,300, 2,400 years ago. And, you know, the kind of people we're talking about were first, second century kind of people. And then, you know, what interests me is... That's probably just because they they had the the means to record it, which they didn't have a few hundred years before that. So That's correct. But it's one of those things I'm curious about the resurgence of it in recent times. Like anybody who... So there's been a lot of talk about this and yep. Nassim Taleb. That Nas- wrote, Nassim Taleb, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he wrote he wrote Black Swan and he has actually said pandemic is not a Black Swan event. It's a White Swan event. We could have seen it coming. We could have planned. But well, he, people like Bill Gates did. Yeah. So he is, he is an example of someone who's probably what you would call a modern Stoic um, in that there was a quote I found from him actually where he was interviewed talking about, you know, he it starts with him saying most people don't understand what stoic is. You know, they think it's all about sort of being robust with no positive or, positive or negative emotions, just this like stone, creature of stone. And he goes on to describe what it means for him. And he says, and my definition of stoic is someone who transforms fear into prudence, pain into transformation. Mistakes into initiation and desire into undertaking. Right. Um, you know, so good, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool, isn't it? And um, one of his other books, I'm a mad, I'm mad, bad, mad about books. What's if you one? haven't read Anti Fragile. Ah, yep. I haven't read going? that one. We have a mutual friend, um, Paige wrote one that is called Becoming Anti Fragile, and it, it draws on a lot of his work as well yeah and so at this time you know if people are there's a lot of talk about resilience which one could if you didn't understand what stoicism is about kind of go oh it's about this resilience just just make it through just shoulder you know whereas the concept of anti-fragile is much more true to the stoic way of seeing the world and seeing life which is it's an opportunity for growth and how can one face into these obstacles and adversity and become more ourselves and see opportunity and become stronger and more connected and all of these things? It's a so Talia is, I would say, he's an example of a modern Stoics, very practical kind of way of looking at the world as it is at the moment. Do you have kids, Kate? Okay. No, I do not. 
young. Um, I actually think there's an issue with parenting at the moment, that there's a, a whole bunch of snow plowing and helicopter parenting that's actually not letting our kids experience difficulties fully. And we're, we're needing that instant gratification of fixing their problems right away. And they get to into their 20s and they don't have a back catalogue of things that they've fixed and things that they've got through and wonder why they fall in a big hole when life gets hard. And I think there's something to be learned from the Stoics about that. We've got to create a safe space for our kids, but we've got to let them have problems and fall over and eat dirt. And and we've got to let them have that back catalogue of things that are hard, which is, well, that's what stress Teflon was about. It's all about stress is good. We've got to learn how to use it. And the hassle is we've, we've bundled it all up in a ball and thrown it away and said, you know, I don't want any of that. And I think, I think the Stoics teach us to sort of step into that a little bit more. And I, you know, something that I'm, I look, I'm, I'm, I'm always um, tentative about commenting on anything to do with parenting, etc. Because it's not my, it's not my domain. But certainly, I know Simon Sinek has. Uh, there was a great interview done with him a couple of years ago where he talked about a lot of what's yeah. going on in modern on workplaces is about um, failed parenting strategies, you know, that are now showing up in the in the workplace, but. I, what I do think, and this takes us a little bit away from what you were saying, but speaks to it from a different perspective, is I think that, uh, and I've thought a lot about this, that Gen X are almost natural Stoics because there's something about the generation, you know, there's 16, we're the smallest generation, it's only 16 years from beginning to end. So people are in kind of their early early 40s to mid 50s ish mid to late 50s i have a client I'm born was, from um 1964 i think to about 1980 i think something Genex, like that yeah around about that and you know we were a bit dark and a bit but there was a whole lot about the world and the way that it was and we were like the first generation that had both parents working latchkey kids um there was stuff about the world that was hard. It was, you know, still the threat of nuclear holocaust. We grew up in an analog world and then had to rapidly, well, we created the digital world. We may not have been born as digital natives, but the digital world was yep. created by Gen X and we had to learn to, to adapt to it. So there's lots of stuff about this generation that I think fine Stoic philosophy resonates with them in terms of their life experience, finds it really useful to help navigate some of the stuff that we're going through at the moment, makes sense to us in lots of ways, um, as does humanism. But it also, we are this generation, and anyone who's younger or older who's watching this doesn't mean that you're out, obviously, but I think there is this precious opportunity and responsibility for people of um, sort of Gen X, the, the Gen X factor, I call it, in terms of the roles of leadership and influence that we're in in the world, in families, in society, in workplaces, um, to help guide people through this. Because the boomers kind of, they were born after the war. And there's been, you know, apart from people who might have been involved in um, a few wars, particularly in our countries, Australia and New Zealand, you know, they, we haven't really been impacted by anything. Pandemic's the biggest thing to hit society at large on the planet since World War II. 
And so we find ourselves in these leadership roles. So where are the guides for us? There aren't people around really who know how to make it through the stuff because the boomers grow up in the good times and yeah. some hard times, particularly if you were in places like Britain under Thatcher and all the rest of it. She was That was hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's why I, I wonder if because of the way we were parented and the world we came up in and where we find ourselves in life now, midlife, positions of leadership and influence, looking for things to help us, um, that going back to the wisdom of people from over 2,000 years ago might be one of the most helpful things we can do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that's where you've got to hand it to people like Ryan Holiday, who's, you know, he's a, He's very much a Gen Z, almost heading into a millennial, and he's actually brought that to an entire different generation. He has so many followers, and you know, three. I haven't, I haven't, I've only read um, "Ego Is the Enemy." I haven't read the other two, but his, um, yeah, his ability to actually almost translate the the work of the Stoics into a way that will actually help help particularly kids. Yeah. Um, and also touching on the, the idea of being anti-fragile. You know, Paige Williams wrote a book called Becoming Anti-Fragile, which, t- which drew from Nassim Tlaib's work. And that idea that we're going to grow, that sort of post-traumatic growth, I think we're so scared of trauma and we're so scared of being uncomfortable that we sort of deprive our, ourselves of the ability to have that post-traumatic growth. Mm. And it's it's what would your advice be to help people step into that uncomfortable thing and actually get the benefit of that back catalogue of hard stories? How do we how do we teach people that it's okay to be uncomfortable? So this part is partly anchored in the idea of productive struggle, which is something from a learning theory, learning design perspective. You know, you design into things if you want people to really experience growth as opposed to, I mean, even reading all these wonderful books, to be honest, it's just, it's knowledge. But it's not really worth anything unless we apply it. And so this is where I think from a development perspective, not just accumulating more knowledge, not throwing more content necessarily at people and programs. You know, there's kind of this obsession where you've got to accumulate all the stuff. Well, all the stuff is on the internet for free. That's not actually how you grow. Mm -hmm. Creating a system that supports people um, in life and I think in a learning environment, in a business context is really important. That holds the space for this um, productive struggle for um, what Heifetz, Ronald Heifetz, in his work around adaptive leadership and adaptive challenges talks about the zone of productive distress which sounds awful, <laughs> but I can't help but smile Wasn't when it? I say yeah. it. I'm not so sure I want to go with that drive, but... but it's it's we we are in a time of massive adaptive challenge, personally and in the world. The level of complexity we're dealing with, you know, is asking us to grow, to think differently, to be different, to do different. And so I think putting a system of support around people, and whether that starts with just identifying you know, what I call your type five. Who are the people who are around you, not just from the perspective of you are a reflection of the five people you spend the most time with, you probably heard that one quite a lot, but who are the five people who 
you respect who you know have a growth mindset and are growing and learning and facing into difficulty and they are overcoming adversity, they are willing to be vulnerable and share struggles. Who are the five people that you can put, you know, invite to be on your type five team, not to get down in the muck and wallow around in self-pity and drama, but to really hold the space for each other to share what you're going through to from a place of compassion and curiosity and interest, but also who will ask you the questions that pull you forward into, into a solution, into opportunity, into a reframe. Um, you talk you know, about you talk about a thing called compassionate challenge. Yeah. And I guess those type five are the people that give you compassionate challenge, I guess, are they? Is that yeah, ask the hard are questions. You need those five people. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's people who see you where you know you feel seen and they know that you see them. And that part of that, and, and this is one of you know my principles around this is you know, is how do we lead with love? And it is that the the love and the deep care and the desire further to this Epictetus quote about actively caring for the welfare of other human beings, that sometimes that care is a question which makes you deeply uncomfortable or which you don't know the answer for. And that the vulnerability that you feel in that moment is no greater than the vulnerability that the person asking that question probably felt. It takes some bravery to ask those questions, doesn't it? And to, and, also to be able to accept those questions with in the way in which they're intended. Mm. Like it's really easy to, to have something going on in your world and go to someone and say, look, this is bad, and they'll just rationalise, they'll just say, yeah, you're right to feel bad, or you can go to someone else and they'll just say toughen up. But that that type five, and I love that concept too, I'm, I'm going to steal the hell out of that. Thank <laughs> you for that. Um, but that idea of having a type five that will give you an empathetic, empathetic alternative or a compassionate challenge yeah. and not just tell you what to do but just steer you in a way that makes you think differently. I think if you have people like that in your type five, you've got to tell them and you've got to embrace them and you've got to say, please don't ever stop doing that because I really, really need it. Mm. And, 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 you know, that, that kind of having a community, you know, of people around you and they can be make them as diverse as possible you know don't don't just have them be your friends but definitely if you don't number at least one friend amongst that then you have to start asking yourself some difficult questions about the nature of your friendships you know the these I think being able to face having a community like that around you that you can choose to create in a in a business context if people are thinking about you know developing leadership then you have to be looking at the, this human system within the organisation and how do we, one of the big questions I ask people is, what's your learning culture? Tell me about the learning culture in your organisation that supports people, not to just go on a course or to work with a coach, but to actually bring it day to day into the struggle and the joy and the opportunity of leadership and of being human to human in, in your environment? What's the system that supports people to learn and grow moment to moment? Yeah. I actually think yeah. that there's a lovely thing. Um, Adam Grant talks about it a little bit in his, his 
new book, Think Again, which is just fantastic. If you're, yeah, if you're great book. For a, have you read it? I it's, it's have, a, it's I've, a, um, amazing book. I've read, I've listened to a couple of podcast interviews. There's um, mm-hmm. two of my favorite. Brown, Brown, he did a couple with, which were great. Well, I love Scott Barry Kaufman. If people aren't listening to the psychology podcast, I recommend you and subscribe and listen. He's just, he's a humanist psychologist. And um, of course, Adam Grant is a cognitive psychologist from an organizational organizational Yeah. But he, he comes hard from the cognitive piece in terms of how does the brain work and therefore why do people show up in the way they do? Whereas um, Scott Barry Kaufman is this, looks at the deeply human aspects and he's written his new book, Transcendence, is about he's he's a hard fanboy on Abraham Maslow, but reimagining right. that because that is now old, you know, looking at it. Well, but now it has of, Wi-Fi at the bottom of it. That's those now needs to have Wi-Fi at the bottom. But the the interview um, that Scott Barry Kaufman did of Adam Grant about that book is brilliant because there's two psychologists completely geeking out on each other's yeah. way of looking at being human and particularly the ways in which we think and the ways in which we do conflict and um, how bias Inter, you know, plays a part in the way we are in the world. So, yeah. But Adam Grant has a spin on your type five, and I've I've changed it a little bit as well. He calls it your challenge network. You need mm-hmm. to have that challenge network of people who who you love and respect and admire how they think, but will also push back on you when you need being pushed back on. And I think there's something really good about I, I call it having the chat, and I have. Um, my co-author of Stress Teflon has a PhD in cognitive science. He's a pretty smart dude. And we've had the chat that if I need, I'm going to ring you up and say, I need you to push back on me with this. This is what this is the story I'm telling myself to steal from Brene Brown. And I give him permission by having that chat. And it's a, it's mm. a forever chat now. We are guaranteed we're going to push back on each other when our, when our heads are up our ass. And having that one person who loves you and cares about you but is also going to push back on you and tell you that you're being an arsehole when you're being an arsehole, there's something really, really refreshing and almost feeling safe to be challenged and it actually makes you feel safer, which is a really weird concept. I'm going to tell you something that you're going to find deeply uncomfortable but I actually feel safer because I know you trust me and honour me enough to do that. Yeah. And... I, th- I think we've got to learn to, to step into that. We've got to learn to get those people and to say, look, I really want you to, to challenge me. And that, how do you go about building that into, a, into an organisation? Because that's got to be hard. I don't know. I don't or know. I'm can always you, mind- you just build it into, into different little clumps of people? I'm always mindful of the word hard um, because, you know, language, we, we're the only ones who hear everything we say. and everything we think and we it's like paying closer attention to the language we use I think it can be a little tricky tricky is a word that I prefer over hard because it's like oh, either way we just it's like that having it hard yet. conversations or, or difficult conversations it's I love like, your take on that no one's given me a, a great way to to say let's have a, a difficult conversation we, I talk about bold conversations okay that's getting closer for sure but it's like, and what are, what are they? Well, they require, you know, they require certain 
they ask certain things of us, but you've got to again understand um, relational dynamics, psychosocial triggers, and then become artful in the use of language as well as energy management, emotional agility to be in those conversations in really powerful and profound ways. You know, it's it's not as simple as give people a framework to structure a conversation so they can prepare and go read the script. So doing that's a good place to start so they don't screw it up, but actually doing the deeper work so that you show up holding the space for the other person to be whoever they're going to be in response to the conversation and not get into reaction yourself is really important. Allowing them to have a human response, being witness to that and seeing their struggle, whatever it might be, and then going, and that's okay. And allowing them to run through that neuro, they're going to have a neurological, neurochemical response to the threat. So just waiting it out, handling your own shit, so that you don't make it worse and allowing them to ride that wave into a space where you can say, so let's talk. Right. And then when you have that space, you're more more receptive to whatever comes your way and more receptive to learn and grow and and get better. And you can more creative. You're able to connect more. I think there's a, anyway, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole about this, but there's a whole. We have rabbit holes galore. I think you and I could just, (laughs) we we could riff on this stuff forever, but I'm, I'm really wary of your time and I, I i really want to thank you for coming on the podcast how can people find you um where where can if people want to know more about kate billing where can we find you and how can they connect sure thing uh the easiest way is uh through linkedin kate billing k-a-t-e-b-i-l-l-i-n-g uh you're invited to connect with me you can just follow along i do love a little personal message with an invitation. Not many people do that anymore, but I'd love to know a little bit about who who you are. Um, And, yeah, that's that's probably the best place at the moment. My blacksmith, my leadership development company, is um, we are going through a reimagining at the moment, which I'm really excited about this year so that'll enable us to work with more organizations around the development of human-centered leadership which is really cool because I reckon the time has never been more necessary to to understand our own humanity and be able to have better stronger more healthy human-to-human relationships and as Epictetus says care more about the welfare of of others and we all do better together so yeah we do on that note, Kate Billing, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This has been an absolute treat and I've thoroughly enjoyed having a chat and um, look forward to catching you up when when next we uh, can get to meet in person. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation, Luke.